Good morning. Happy Sunday to you all. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this uh, this wonderful meeting, the wonderful morning. God, where we um, can rejoice because your mercy is new today. That we can rejoice because we've been made new. We can rejoice because of our standing in Christ and our hope, our sure hope, that you will return to make all things new. And Lord, I pray that as we engage in your word, as we finish out this wonderful book of Second Corinthians, that we'd be reminded of our perfect standing in Christ. And God, I pray that you would compel us to aim for a direction of perfection that will be one day completed when you return to judge the living and the dead. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first and that you love us more. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. God's people said, amen. Good morning again. We are uh, finishing up uh, the wonderful book of 2 Corinthians. We've been in it for 20 weeks. And um, we will, as John said, we're going to uh, do eight weeks in the Psalms starting next week. And we've uh, titled that series, <clears throat> uh, Re- Rejoice. What did we title it? Not Rejoice. I got Rejoice more. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yeah, that one. Thank you, Chase. Yeah, like I got brain fog going on. And uh, there's going to be a number of different guys preaching through it. It's going to be eight weeks. We're going we're gonna to sample the five books. There's five different books in Psalms. I don't know if you knew that or not. And there's uh, three different primary genres. We'll be preaching through each of those genres, through uh, praise, through lament, and through thanksgiving. I think you'll enjoy it. But today we've got business to finish up. Uh, we get to finish up in this wonderful book. Um, I titled the sermon today, The Aim for Restoration. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interchange restoration and perfection a number of different times. But it's the same word, um, to be restored or to be perfected. Um, it's the same. It's from the same Greek word. You may not know this about me. Some of you do, if you've done enough. My wife certainly knows this about me. Uh, people like Bonnie Cooper and maybe even Kelly know this about me. Maybe Chase does. But I'm a perfectionist. Um, and um, it sounds good, but it's actually a bit dysfunctional in uh, many ways. And um, I work hard to do things right, and when I make mistakes, um, I really um, are, I'm hard on myself. When other people make mistakes, um, I can be hard on them. I'm overly competitive at times. I'm impatient, and I'm intolerant about other people's mistakes and shortcomings when I'm in the flesh. When I'm in the spirit, uh, not quite as bad. Um, I don't often cut myself much slack, and I don't cut others slack in their imperfections either. So, I'm a perfectionist. God is a perfectionist in a different way, in a good and perfect way. Um, You've heard me say many times that the Christian life is not about what? Direction, about perfection, but it's about direction. We cannot live this life perfectly, but we can have a sure direction. I'm going to say it in a little bit different way today, and I'm going to try to say it this way several different times throughout the sermon. As we stand in Christ's perfection, our aim is to be a direction of perfection. As we stand in Christ's perfection, our aim is to be a direction of perfection. I'll hopefully tease this out over the next 30 minutes or so. My prayer today is that you'd be compelled. You'd be compelled by your perfect standing in Christ to aim for a direction of perfection. 
that you'd be compelled afresh to make this your aim, not only your personal aim, but your communal aim, if you will. That would be the aim of this church, and that we would aim that direction of perfection together. So as we wrap up these 20 weeks in 2 Corinthians, I want to remind you that Paul wrote this letter. At times he's pretty harsh. He's wrote this letter to people that he cares for. His ultimate aim is to see them built up, not tore down. Corinth, much like northern Colorado, was a boom town with a rapidly growing population where people moved there to have a better life. Has anybody noticed that this is a bit of a boom town? You've been to Raindance or the Ridge recently? There was no city in the Roman Empire more conducive to advancement and comfort than Corinth and the surrounding area of Achaia. Being wealthy and comfortable was a high value for people in that culture. The people of that region were obsessed with building their own kingdom and seeking wealth and pleasure and comfort at any cost. The similarities of their culture and our culture could lead us to describe this book as Second Coloradoans, not necessarily Second Corinthians. Paul arrived in Corinth preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaiming a greater and lasting kingdom, and many people, to the glory of God, repented, and they believed. Their lives were forever changed. Paul was in Corinth for a total of 18 months, but Paul, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Paul's aim in going to different cities was certainly to proclaim the gospel and that many would believe, but his final aim was not just conversion. It was to leave behind a healthy church where people were... were um, living for Jesus together. So he stayed for 18 months in Corinth before living, leaving to his next assignment, which was in Ephesus. And it wasn't long in Ephesus. It wasn't long after he left Corinth that he got word that the world's culture was starting to seep back into the church. And the church was becoming overcome with vanity, and they were compelled by an overwhelming desire for wealth and honor and distinction and comfort. And they were less compelled by the love of Christ. The church in Corinth, like much of the church in the world today, was compelled, or excuse me, was, was uh, desired forgiveness and grace. Who doesn't want forgiveness? Who doesn't want grace? But they were duped by false teachers telling them that they should go after all that the world has to offer. These false teachers taught a different gospel. And here's the two elements of a different or false gospel. It's a gospel that doesn't preach sin, and it's a gospel that doesn't require obedience. It's a false gospel. These super apostles had impressive resumes. They were great communicators. They had stories of God's power, and they apparently lived their lives in comparative ease and wealth. These, these put-together false teachers called into, question, uh, called into question Paul's apostolic authority. They asked questions like this. If Paul was for real, why was there so much suffering in his life? If Paul had the authentic uh, apostolic message, the gospel, why didn't his life, why didn't he live a life of wealth and, and, and human victory? Why was his preaching so dull? Why didn't Paul have letters of recommendation like us? Why didn't Paul woo others with stories of God's power in his ministry? Is it because he had no power? Paul responded to this heartbreaking news by writing what we know is a severe and sorrowful letter. It's a letter that's been lost, but he sent it to the church from Ephesus to the church in Corinth, calling them to repentance. And he sent it 
uh, by the hands of a man by the name of Titus. Titus reported back to the glory of God that the letter worked, that a majority of the people that repented, but there was still an unrepentant minority in Corinth who were entrapped by the false teaching of the so-called super apostles. Therefore, Paul writes 2 Corinthians to the church and specifically to the unrepentant minority. And in this letter, as you've seen over the last two weeks, Paul expressed great joy for the majority that has repented. He's expressed deep sorrow for the minority that has yet to repent. But he was an eternal optimist. Paul believes that when he arrives back in Corinth, he's going to make his third trip back to Corinth after this letter that he's writing called 2 Corinthians. He, he believes that when he arrives back there that the entire church would turn from the false teaching and they would once again embrace him and the message that he delivered. We can make the mistake oftentimes when we're reading Scripture or listening to the teaching of Scripture that, oh, this was nice for that culture back then. But every word, every sentence, paragraph, every letter written, all 66 books, is not only for an original audience, but it's for every audience for all time. So my trust is that God has something for each of us here today. Wherever you're coming from, whatever you experience, that God has something for you and me today. This letter is a wake-up call and a reminder that our lives are not our own and that the Christian life is a cruciform life. It's a life where we are increasingly being shaped by the cross rather than being shaped by the culture. If there's a key passage in 2 Corinthians, it's chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, where Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us or compels us, because we've concluded this, that no one has died, that one who, that one, excuse me, has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, Paul would not relent until the church is compelled by the love of Christ to live not for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. He will not relax until their aim is a life. Their aim in life is a direction of perfection. Paul summarizes this letter with a final plea in three short verses, like an attorney coming up with his final, um, his final words, his final plea. And he does it in five imperatives, five commands. In one verse, verse 11, rejoice, aim for restoration or perfection, comfort one another, agree with one another, and live in peace. And these five imperatives come with a promise at the end of verse 11. The love of God and peace will be with you. Verse 11, finally, brothers, finally, 20 weeks, Finally, brothers and sisters, literally brothers and sisters. He shifts now from a stern scolding and a warning that started in chapter 8, verse 1, and goes all the way through chapter 13, verse 10. He now switches to a more affectionate tone, brothers and sisters. Throughout this letter, as I mentioned, he's expressed great joy over the, over the repentant majority. He's expressed deep, deep sorrow over the unrepentant minority. Now he closes out this letter with a sense of optimistic instruction to the church as a whole, those who are repentant and those who are unrepentant. 
biological brothers and sisters. Some of you have siblings. Some of you have kids that are siblings. And when you have siblings, you have a connection with those people that other human that you don't have with other human beings. We often look alike. We have similar interests. We have a certain DNA that comes providentially through our parents' God-given DNA. And this connection that we have with our biological family comes from a perishable seed. I have seven biological brothers and sisters. We have similar body types. All of our eyes are too close together. And to some extent, we have similar personalities. God help us all. There is a bond that is hard to describe and understand. Like when we get together in our family reunion, I mean, it's just, it's not pretty. But this, this temporal bond that is a real bond is a result of a perishable seed. On the other hand, brothers and sisters in Christ are forever bound together by a shared DNA from an imperishable seed that Peter calls it in 1 Peter 1.22. John says it this way in chapter 1. He says he came to his own. Jesus came to his own, to his own Jewish people, to his family members. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How did they become children of God? Verse 13. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ should have a stronger affinity and a relational bond with one another than any other group of people. There's many subsections of people in, in this world that we relate to and enjoy. One of them is, like, I'm half Italian, I'm half Irish. There's something that, there, I have a certain affinity with the Irish people and the Italian people. You have favorite sports teams. You and I might have an affinity because we're Dodgers fans. Or, wow, Rockies fans. And I might hate you because you're a Dodgers fan. I would never hate you. I might have a hard time liking you, but I would never hate you. Some of you have graduated from colleges that you still give to that college. You still go to the reunions. You have a certain affinity. I went to the University of Northern Colorado, UNC, University of No Credit. When I want to have our reunion, I go to the jail. No, I don't do that. <laughs> Crossfitters, certain affinity. You can go to a gym in any city, and you've got the same cult in every city. These are things of common grace where we have an affinity, that God's given us a special affinity to different groups of people. But Paul writes in his benediction, brothers and sisters, addressing them in the most intimate of ways as a group of people that he cares for and he hopes to spend eternity with. Brothers and sisters in Christ. At the same time, the imperatives that he lays out summarizing um, the entire letter are for you all. That, these, that these, um, this letter is not just for you or just for me. It's for y'all. It's for us together. So the first imperative, he says, rejoice. It's a call to rejoice. This is the joy that comes from a progressing faith 
in a good and loving and sovereign God. It's a joy that comes from walking by faith and not by sight. It's a glad rejoicing in all the Lord has called you to and has brought you to, knowing that he will bring you through it. It's a rejoicing in all the Lord has called you to, that he's brought you to, and and knowing and having faith that he'll bring you through it. Seven times in the letter, Paul expressed joy. He rejoiced seven times. Not once of those seven times do we see Paul rejoicing as a result of his circumstances, except for once in his hard circumstances. In chapter chapter 6, verse 10, he said he was sorrowful, sad, grief-stricken, yet always rejoicing. He rejoiced other times in this letter when, when others turned from their sin. He rejoiced. When others were comforted and he wasn't, he rejoiced. When others stood firm in their faith, he rejoiced. In other words, rejoicing is heavenly and other-centered, not earthly and self-centered. Yes, there are many. Oh, I've got my four grandkids up there. Give a, give a wave. Hey, kids. Love you guys. Um, I've got my four grandkids. There's a lot of joy that I get in those, in those grandkids. A lot. I don't get a lot of joy from your dog, but I get a lot of joy from the four grandkids. I do like Penny. Penny's good. But lasting joy comes not from our circumstances. Lasting joy. It's heavenly, and it's other-centered. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.24, he says, We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Lasting, deep-rooted joy is rooting, rooted in a progressing faith in God's promises and his character. Rejoicing comes from not from improved circumstances, but in standing firm in our faith in the perfect life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Jesus, knowing that he has already improved our eternal circumstances, and one day he will complete the restoration process or the perfection process. They'll be, we'll be perfect in every way. This rejoicing is a group effort. And there are times when we are stuck and are having a hard time rejoicing. You ever been there? I have. I know you have. Paul says this in Philippians 1.25. Paul was was having a conversation with himself. He was trying to determine. He he wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to go home to be with Jesus. But he's going like, what is better, to stay here or to be with Jesus? And he determined it was better to stay on the earth. Do you know why? Because he still had goals and plans. He still had retirement to take care of. No. He said, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That Paul wanted to stay for the progress and joy in the faith of other Christians. And have you ever thought about it, of all the great purposes that we have in life, being uh, husbands, wives, friends, parents, grandparents, that one of the, one of the, the, the greatest purposes we have is to work for the progress and joy of other people's faith. For Paul knows that genuine and lasting joy comes from professing Christians standing firm in their faith and not focusing on their circumstances. Are you compelled to rejoice this morning? Or what's compelling you to rejoice this morning? 
The second imperative or command is aim for restoration, maturity, perfection. Aim for it. The implication here is that we need restoring. We're not perfect yet. We haven't arrived. Yes, brothers and sisters, we have been restored or perfected as a result of our new birth in Christ. We are in perfect standing with God in the righteousness of, righteousness of Jesus Christ. God is a perfectionist. That's why he sent Jesus. We could not approach him in our sinful filth without being purified, without being cleansed, without being uh, uh, um, without Jesus' imputed righteousness. This work of progressive perfection or progressive restoration is often referred to as sanctification. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews 10, chapter 14. He says, For by a single offering, Jesus' death on the cross, he has perfected you in me by faith for all time. Those who are being sanctified. If there's no root, if there's no fruit, there's no root. You see, we've been, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you can stand confidently in the righteousness of Jesus. But we're to have an aim towards perfection. What does this aim look like? This aim for restoration or perfection? It's really walking in our righteous standing. It's being who God already sees us as. We've been cleansed of all unrighteousness or sin, and one day when Jesus returns or calls us home, we will be fully restored. Righteousness, righteousness will not only be our standing today, but it will be our nature one day. The aim, pure and simple, is to do the Father's will. That's the aim for perfection. To do the Father's will. His revealed will is laid out in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus summarized the Father's will. If you want the, the, uh, the cliff notes, he, Jesus summarized the Father's will. The first and second great command. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? To love your neighbor as yourself. The clearest evidence that we're loving God is actually how we're treating our neighbor. Not necessarily your next-door neighbor, although that's part of it, but your neighbor. Who has God providentially put you in relationship with? Your unsaved neighbor. Your suffering neighbor. Your Christian neighbor that is hurting and caught up in sin. To be clear, we don't aim for perfection or restoration by our own strength, and we don't do it to be accepted. We aim for perfection by the power of the Holy Spirit from our acceptance. You see, every other religion in the world says that I, am, I, I obey so that I can be accepted. Except for Christianity. Because we've been fully accepted and forever loved, we what? We do the Father's will. We obey. Philippians 3.12 says, Paul says, not that I've already obtained this, I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, perfection my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The aim is compelled by the reality that we belong to Jesus and that he died for us. Are you aiming for restoration? Are you aiming for perfection? The third imperative is to comfort one another. 
And to comfort or encourage one another means to draw near or to strengthen. It's to carry others to the Word of God, or, or say it another way, to carry others to the God of the Word. When they are helpless, when they are hurting, it's come alongside others when they can't rejoice. Last Sunday at Living Water Fellowship, I had the opportunity to preach through chapter 2 of Mark, uh, verses 1 through 20. And the very first section, if you're familiar with it, is when the four friends brought their paralytic friend to Jesus. And the scene was that Jesus is in probably Peter's mother-in-law's house. Um, every square foot was filled with people listening to his preaching, hoping to get healed. There's people sitting in the window seals. There's people outside the door. And these four men, all they know is they want, the, the passage says they want to bring their friend near Jesus, N-E-A-R. They want to bring him near Jesus. And I would guess is to be healed. Because just before that, Jesus had healed the leper. Um, he had uh, cast out demons. The word was going across all of Galilee that Jesus was a miracle doer. But these friends, all they knew was that their helpless friend needed to be near Jesus. So they, they could have come up to the people, saw the crowd, and went back home and said, it wasn't God's will for you to be near Jesus. But instead what they did is they climbed a ladder with their paralytic friend hanging on for dear life. They went to the roof, which was about two feet deep. Um, it had four-by-four four beams, and across those beams were sticks and twigs, and there was about two feet of dirt. And they dug through the ceiling so that they could get their paralytic friend near to Jesus. That's what comfort looks like. When he says, comfort one another, it's not just a, it can be just a short text, but sometimes we need to bring people near Jesus. We can do that through prayer. We can do that through sharing scripture. We can, we can do that like Job's three friends in the first couple of days, just sitting quietly with them. But it necessarily involves encouraging others with the truth of who Jesus is, what he accomplished, and that he's coming again to make all things right. The writer of Hebrews said in chapter 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. There's times where we are stuck in sin, where we're not believing the promises of God. It says in verse 13, But exhort or comfort one another every day as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is the heart of Paul in Galatians 6.1, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's referring to somebody that is not just rebellious against God, but they're caught in some type of sin. And in our culture today, we can lean towards licentiousness, like you're caught, like, like I've been caught there before too, like Lord bless you, like just... Uh, you're in good company. I'll pray for you. That's, that's licentiousness. Um, legalism is like, stop doing that. How could you ever do that? What, what Paul is saying here is in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's coming alongside them and understanding what's going on in their heart, what's making them, to, what's making them sin, and bringing the healing salve of God's word. Gently calling them the repentance with the goal of restoring them to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, as we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. I mean, that's my job and your job to supply what's lacking in one another's faith. Yeah. We, we stand um, in Christ's righteousness, but we struggle in our faith. Our, all of our faith is incomplete at some level. At times we walk by sight and not by faith. But one of the best ways that we can comfort one another is to come alongside and to supply what is lacking in the faith of others. Do you know someone that needs comfort or encouragement today? Maybe it's you. Maybe you're suffering on your own. Or you're caught in sin and you have no way out of it. Talk to somebody. Talk to somebody you know that will come alongside you and bring the healing salve of God's Word. They'll bring you near to Jesus. The fourth imperative is to agree with one another. To be of one mind. This is, this is to have the mind of Christ. So this command to agree with one another is not a call for harmony for the sake of harmony. Just to get together on Sundays and you know sing Kumbaya. It's for unity in the apostolic truth that Paul has been teaching in this letter. The Word of God is the standard and the source of unity for God's people. And we agree on the major things. God's Word must be the standard and source of unity for God's people. We, we agree on the means of salvation, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. We agree on the progressive fruit of salvation. That where there's no fruit, we've got to ask if there's actually root. And then we agree that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And we may not agree on secondary issues, and that's okay. We may not agree on things like um, the end times when Jesus is coming. We may not agree on men's and women's roles or on spiritual gifts. But when we disagree on secondary um, doctrines, we, sh we should agree with one another that we will strive for agreement with open Bibles and open hearts. With open Bibles and open hearts. For the Word of God is our authority. That's how we have the mind of Christ. That's how we agree with one another. Paul talks about this in Romans 15. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And we do that by being accord, in accord with His Word. That together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We agree with one another when we have the same mind of Christ and we develop, and we develop that mind of Christ with our Bibles open and our hearts open. You know what the, the most popular version of the Bible is? The DST. It's a dusty standard version. My wife gave that to me last week. I don't know where she found that at. But it's true. Like, how does a church have the same mind when our Bibles haven't been cracked and we're not wrestling through hard things together? Um, have a, agreeing with one another takes, uh, takes vulnerability. It actually 
leaves room that you actually might be wrong on your view of a particular secondary doctrine. And somebody else might be right. And so we, with vulnerability and transparency, we open the living and active Word of God, and we dialogue in it and through it and let the Spirit of God teach us. We have a class here at Windsor Community Church called Biblical Convictions. Most of you have gone through it. Uh, Pastor Jake is teaching it now. I think you're, what, about halfway through, Jake? Something like that. We'll have another class starting in the fall. Um, but it's, we, it's, it's 10 weeks, and we talk about some of the primary doctrines, uh, the doctrine of salvation, how you're saved. Um, but we also talk about some secondary doctrines, like men's and women's roles and spiritual gifts. And you can come out of that class actually not agreeing with us and still fellowship and be part of this church. But we, what we want to do until Jesus returns is we want to have open Bibles and open hearts to dialogue around those secondary doctrines. So if, you, if this is a church where God really wants you to be a part of the you all here so that you can rejoice with us and, and, and be a part of this church in every way, um, biblical convictions is a good place to start. The final imperative is live in peace. I think you've heard me say this before, that a true peacekeeper is a false peacemaker. The call of the Christian is not to keep the peace. Just have peace. Let's not talk about anything hard. Paul's not referring to keeping the peace. If that was his concern, he wouldn't have wrote this letter. He's pretty hard on these, on these Corinthians. He actually, last week he said, he said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. He's calling them to repentance. Paul is not a peacekeeper. He's a peacemaker. Jesus was not a peacekeeper. Jesus came to make peace. So Paul exhorts the church to live in peace with all relationships, starting with the Father, vertical, and then with horizontal relationships. This involves a heart of repentance and a heart of reconciliation. And as we mature in our faith, as you mature in your faith, as I mature in my faith, um, we should be more and more aware of our sin. Hopefully we're sinning less, but when we sin less, we're more aware of our sin. And at the same time we're more aware of our sin, we're more in awe of the mercy and grace and forgiveness of our good and loving God. We will increasingly desire peace with all human beings especially those who share the name of Christ. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, if possible, as far as it depends on who, you, me, live at peace with everyone. That's the call to be a peacemaker. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all. That involves um, examination. It involves, before we take communion today, um, that if you know Jesus Christ, you're free to come to the table. There's no conditions, but he asks that we would examine ourselves, that we would see if, are we, are we, um, are there people that we're not in peace with? Are there people that we have sinned against, that we haven't humbled ourselves and asked for forgiveness? Are there people that have sinned against us, either intentionally or unintentionally, that we have a root of bitterness that has sprung up that we have not yet forgiven? 
Now, forgiveness is not one, it's not one and done. It's not like a magic bullet where you just pray some prayer and then magically um, all the bitterness has gone away. It's a process. It's day to day. It's week to week. But this is what Paul is, ta- this is what Paul is talking about when he says live in peace. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So let me ask you, are you living in peace with the Father today? Is there sin in your life that you need to turn from? Are you living at peace with others, confessing and forgiving So Paul lays out these five imperatives, and they come with a promise. He says, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Here's what I don't think he's talking about, because Scripture always confirms Scripture. And we know that once we have been regenerated, when the Spirit of God has sealed us and lives in us, that there's nothing we can do to separate from the love of God. So this isn't a condition for God to be with us if we we perform in some way. What he's saying here is that if you're not experiencing the love of God, if you're not experiencing the peace of God, to look back and go, are you doing the will of the Father? Are you aiming for restoration? Because God is always with you. But we will experience his nearness and peace when we do the Father's will. In 12 and 13, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Yuck. All the saints greet you, verse 13. And a holy kiss is apparently something that Paul invented. Because there's a new class of people now called Christians. And he needed some type of secret handshake, something that would set them apart when they came together. So it was a holy kiss. It was a real thing. And they they still continue this. And it's why I like Italy. It's why I like Ireland. Not only do I have ancestors there, but you actually have the freedom to kiss people on the cheek. And they still do it there. Not, probably not appropriate in this culture. Some of you men have been poked by me in the ribs. I'll, bag, I'll grab your hamstring. I know it infuriates some of you. But it's just it's a holy kiss. It's what I do. I know it's weird. Ladies, sometimes I'll like fist bump you or give you like a side hug. Probably sister. We greet one another with a holy kiss in ways that I don't greet people necessarily at the gym that I don't know to be Christians. Then he writes in verse 13, and all the saints greet you. He's writing from Macedonia, and he's saying that the set-apart saints there in Macedonia greet the set-apart brothers and sisters in Christ in Corinth. Have you ever been to a church in a different city or in a different country where you don't know a soul, but there's something familiar? And it's that, there's, it's that imperishable seed that other people have. It's that DNA that's coursing through um, other people that you've never even met. That there's a familiarity in the word that's being preached, in the songs that are being sung. It's, it's a, this holy kiss is a secret handshake of sorts. And Paul gives us a final benediction, not to a person, but to the church that is bound together in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
This is his heart's desire for the entire church. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The love of God be with you all. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And it's interesting here, for you Bible geeks, this follows the sequence of salvation, not necessarily the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's first the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's the, the grace that saved you. He wants to be with them. And the all-sufficient grace that will keep them and carry them through. And he says, and the love of God be with you all. We see the love of God most clearly through the cross of Christ. And Paul knows that it's keeping the love of God before us that will compel us to live lives in joyful submission to the Father. And finally says, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul's final reference to the Holy Spirit refers to the blessing of the new covenant. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. We're sealed. It reminds us of who we belong to. We've also been given the Holy Spirit as an agent of perfection or restoration. And it's the Spirit of God. It's the, it's the Spirit that's the imperishable seed that enables fellowship with the Father and with other believers. Listen to 1 John 1-4. One, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was one from the beginning, excuse me, <clears throat> which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. There's no fellowship with people unless there's fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Communion comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 16 which describes the cup as participation in the blood of Christ and describes the bread as participation in the body of Christ. The word participation translates the Greek word koinia, which means communion or fellowship. So when we celebrate communion, it's really a, it's, it's, it's a body-wide ordinance. It's reminding us of the fellowship that we have with the Father. It conveys the idea that communion is an act of participation or fellowship with Christ and also one another. It's a relational act. Meals are like this. I love food, and I love eating food with other people, unless it's tofu, which is no food. Think of what an invitation to dinner means. There's something about being invited to somebody's house. It's, a, it's an invitation certainly to share a meal, but it's an invitation to friendship. Come into my casa, mi casa su casa. Share a meal with me. It's an invitation to friendship. In the same way, communion, the Lord's Supper, is an invitation to a deepening relationship with Jesus Christ, a deepening friendship with Jesus. Communion is a regular renewal and ratification of the new covenant. It reminds us of God's commitment to us. But as, as equal importance, it reminds us of our commitment to Him. It's like an anniversary. Some of you I know have, have celebrated anniversaries. And Nancy used to always bring this, like, dirty, melted uh, candle 
uh, out on our anniversaries. You didn't do it this year for some reason. But it's a candle that we had at our wedding. And she brought out the, the she brings out the, the, the cups, the, the actual cups that we had at our wedding. And we drink champagne out of it. And we remind ourselves of our commitment to one another, her commitment to me, and my commitment to her. And that's what we're doing in communion. We're being reminded of the covenant, Jesus' unbreakable covenant with us. And in turn, our covenant to follow him, to obey him. On every repetition of communion, God confirms his resolution to stick to his covenant. By eating the bread and drinking the cup, we commit ourselves to keep close to this condition of faith. In being reminded of his covenant faithfulness to us and our perfect standing in Christ Jesus, we in turn are compelled to aim for perfection or restoration. And we do this together. And this communion, this Lord's Supper, is only for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. If you are still standing in your own righteousness, if you're still uh, trying to earn your way to a, a greater eternity, it's going to end bad. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him is what? Not perish, but have eternal life. And this news, this saving news is for anybody who believes. If you're here today and you've yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus, we're ecstatic that you're here. But this is not for you. Until you put your faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwells you, regenerates you, transforms you, and you're that imperishable seed in you as well. I want to invite the worship team up as I kind of describe our next steps today. There's no one way to do communion. There is one heart in communion. There's no one way to do it. If you are in Christ, this is a, this is a celebration, a reminder of what Jesus has done, and a reminder of our commitment to him. And we're reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to, to examine ourselves. I won't read it. To examine ourselves so that we don't take the cup in vain. You don't need to be perfect. You don't have to have not barked at your kids this morning. But before you take the elements, would you just ask God, God, would you um, know me and examine me and show me if there's any wicked way in me? God, is there anybody that, 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 that I have bitterness towards that I need to forgive? Is there anybody that I've sinned against? Just do business with him. Receive his love and his forgiveness. And then um, before we take this, we're, we're actually going to spend a few minutes of quiet reflection. And then we're going to sing a song. And then I'm going to come back up together and we're going to participate in this meal together. So let me read this before we reflect. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So just 
quietly do business with the Lord.